0: guys again. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but when I first moved to Augusta like three years ago, Kevin was one of the first pastors that I met, and this church was the first church that I preached at here in Augusta. So I know that it's not biblical to be members of two churches, but if it was, I would totally have dual membership here at Christ the King. Uh, I just really love you guys a lot and especially appreciate just the love and the fellowship that you have together. Uh, Several of my students go here. My good friend Matthew goes here. And it's just so encouraging just to hear of all the great things that God is doing in and through you all. So thank you so much for just walking in obedience to Jesus' commands. Uh, So again, my name is Jesse Holmes. I am uh, the newly discipleship pastor at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, specifically verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have the same kind of Bible I do, it's page 976. Uh, There's one statement that I try to make as often as I can, and simply this. The gospel is the most important message you will ever hear in your entire life. There's nothing greater than the message of the gospel. According to Paul, it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is the good news of salvation through Christ Jesus' death and resurrection— It's a declaration that a sinful man can be at peace with God. But the reality of the gospel is, it's not just a story that we hear or something that we read in the Bible or a message that's preached. For those in this room that believe, the gospel is our story. It's our story. It is something that didn't just happen to us a long time ago when we confessed Jesus as Lord, but the gospel is at work in our lives every single day. It's not just something that took place a long time ago, but the gospel is constantly at work in us, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, God's Son. It's a powerful message. And the reason why this message is so important in the life of a believer, because it reminds us of the truth of God, of what He has done in us and through us and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this is what brings us to Ephesians chapter 2. There are many accounts of the gospel throughout the New Testament, but Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is my favorite. What Paul does in this text is he wants the believers, he's speaking to mainly Gentile believers in this text, he wants them to remember what God has done, because there's power in remembering. And so oftentimes, or sometimes in our lives, when we are reminded of something that we already know, sometimes we like say, oh man, this is boring. Uh, yeah, I know this, and we just kind of half-listen. May that not be so for us as believers. May the gospel never become a message that we are bored of or that we check a box and say, yeah, I got that. Oh, I know that. Oh, I've heard it a thousand times. But may we remember and may that lead to power within us. Because the act of remembering is powerful. It does something. Looking back gives us motivation. It reminds us of our hope and it empowers us to persevere. Uh, The essence of reminding is it leads to action. For example, there might have been a time in your life where your mom told you to clean up your room and to have it clean before she gets back, and as you hear the car roll up, her message is coming to your mind, and you have not cleaned up that room, and you might have moved faster than you have ever moved in your life, Trying to cram stuff under the bed, throw things in the closet, remembering leads to action. Also, you might have been sitting on the couch watching a TV show one day, and you look at the time, as 10 o'clock, and all of a sudden you remember you have a paper due at midnight. You might have never typed so fast in your life because remembering leads to action. And in a positive way, you might go out to eat, and you look in your pocket, you remember you have a gift card, you're excited. So there's power in remembering. Therefore, us as believers, thinking and remembering in the gospel should be a daily habit. It should be something that we do every single day because it's powerful. Now, chapter 2 of Ephesians is extremely powerful on its own. However, it's actually a continuation of a prayer that Paul is praying in chapter 1. So unlike a lot of the other letters, especially Galatians, uh, if you're familiar with Galatians, Paul says uh, who he is, and then he just gets straight to the point. You guys are messed up unlike Galatians, Paul is actually very kind and loving, and he's encouraging them because he's grateful for where they're at. And so he begins this uh, praise of report of them. He's thankful for them, and then he begins to pray. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers and seated him at his right-hand side in the heavenly places, far above rule, all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So oftentimes as Paul is writing these letters and he's thinking about the greatness of God through Christ Jesus, like he just gets excited. Like I don't know if you sense that in there. He is like preaching and beginning at verse 20, he begins thinking about what God has done through Christ and with every and, every and, every and, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the point of chapter two, where for us as believers, it is the biggest and that we could hear. and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here in this text, Paul is reminding the believers and us believers today of the truth of the gospel, of the work that God has done through Christ for our sake, and for his glory. And this reminder is intended to bring about shouts of praise and excitement, to make our hearts grateful, but to also make our feet anxious to declare the power of God to those who have yet to experience it. Let us pray. Father, we are just so grateful for your love and your grace displayed on the cross of Jesus. So right now, we ask that as we walk through Ephesians chapter 2, that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will teach us. Will you open up our eyes that we might see and understand? Will you allow these truths to seep into our minds, into our hearts, that lead to a transformation of action? Lord, thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. Will you remind us of that this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our text this morning will be broken up into three parts, uh, who we were, who God is and what he has done, and who we are now. So beginning in verses 1 through 3, who we were, this is what Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is bad news, right? This is like really bad news. Paul is describing who we were in the state that we were in, and the first word that comes up is dead. We all of us in this room that, were belie- that are believers, we were dead. Now, what does this word dead mean? Paul is t- referring to our spiritual state. Spiritually, we were separated from God. Spiritually, we were doing everything anti-God. Spiritually, we had nothing to do with God, and the best word to describe our state was dead. And so, who is dead? Who's dead? Well, there's two pronouns that I want to bring to your attention. First in verse 1, he says, and you. Paul is talking to a Gentile audience, and so he's saying, hey Gentiles, remember this, you were dead. But then in verse 3, he says, among whom we all once lived. So Paul in verse 3 is bringing his people into the mix, the Jews into the mix. So who was spiritually dead? Everybody. Like Jews, Gentiles, everybody were separated from God spiritually. And so now the next question is, well, what is the evidence of this death? What did it look like and what does it mean for us to be spiritually dead? First of all, he says this, we were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, he uses these two words not to try to create this idea, let's define trespasses, which is a sidestep from the truth, or to describe sins, but really what he's doing is giving us a double patty of a bad burger. A double patty of a bad burger. In your deadness, not only were you trespassing, but you were also acting out in your sins. Double bad like not good. There's no good in that at all. So as a side note, if anybody thinks that before Christ there was any good in us of our own, Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. No, no, you were a double patty of badness. You were walking in trespasses and sins. So the way that we lived our lives were evidence of our spiritual death. Number two, he talks about how we walked. He says this, three ways that we walked. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, also known as Satan. And we followed a pattern of disobedience. So evidence of our spiritual death is that, first of all, we were in our trespasses and sins. We acted out, and the people that we were following were also anti-God. So what does it mean to follow the course of this, this world? Well, the world, in this sense, is just more badness. Like, if you think about all the bad stuff in this world, people do whatever they want to do, they go wherever they want to go, they say whatever they want to say, and all of those things are contrary to the commands of God. Paul says that in our spiritual deadness, we were following after people that were going in the opposite, opposite direction of the Lord. Not only that, but he increases it. He steps it up by saying, you are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul says that you were following Satan. I mean, how, how much bad can you be if you're following Satan? The one who disobeyed the Lord. The one as we read in Genesis chapter 3 tempted Adam and Eve to disobey and distrust the Lord. In our spiritual deadness, it wasn't that we were kind of good and Jesus made us great. It wasn't that we messed up a few times and Jesus helped us not mess up. We were following Satan, following his footsteps. And finally, as a result, we were following the pattern of those who are disobedient. that's a lot of bad. That's a lot of disobedience. That's a lot of anti-God, and Paul says all of these things to paint the picture of who we were. And not only that, he steps it up one more time in verse 3. He then begins to describe our works, how we live. He says that we live in the passions of our flesh. So that means whatever we were feeling, all the sinful desires and things that we had going on inside, man, we lived it out. We were unhindered. I wanna go do that, I did it. I wanna say that, I said it. I want that, I'm gonna go grab it. There was nothing that was holding us back in our spiritual deadness. And that's why he continues to say that we carried out the desires of the body and the mind. We were doing whatever we wanted to do, and as a result, We're not labeled as kind of good. We're not labeled as, oh, we're only human. We mess up. But we were labeled children of wrath. Children of wrath. Of God's wrath. The creator of heaven and earth. The one who sustains all things. In our deadness, we were so anti-God that the wrath of God was fixated on us. Why? Because God is holy and has nothing to do with that which is of sin. And so Paul paints the picture very beautifully that in our sinfulness, in our deadness, we were separated from God. We were enemies of God, but not only were we enemies of God, we were active enemies of God. So we weren't passive. We weren't just like, oh, God thinks that we're bad. We're saying in every single thing that we did, I hate you, God. I hate you, God. I hate you, God. And the things that we said and the way that we lived, all of those things were making a loud statement, I hate you, God. That's rough. (laughs) That's bad news. But that is the truth of the gospel. We live in a world and in a time, and this isn't new, this has been going on for a very long time, where we want to hide from the truth of verses 1 through 3. We want to make ourselves not look that bad. We were okay, and God made us better. But when we adopt that false gospel, we rob Jesus of who he is. We defame what God has done. We take away God and Jesus' glory when we look at ourselves and we say that I did it, I was okay, I was good enough. It's a lot from Satan to deceive you and to make you not see God as who he really is. But for us as believers, man, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, though this news is like super bad and it's discouraging, it should number one lead us to praise him just to think that there was a time where this described who I was, but it's not who I am anymore. Praise the Lord. Number two, it should create within us a compassion for those that are dead. Man, if you're sitting in this room today and you're like, man, let me tell you, I know some people like that. They're so messed up. Shame on you. Man, this, the reality of verses one through three should not put us in a seat of judgment but it should place us in a seat of compassion. That as we see people walking in disobedience, we look at them and we say, I did that. I thought that. I said that. I was there also. And for anyone in this room that is not a believer, it might seem like we are being mean and we're being judgmental. We believe the Bible to be 100% true. that has no errors in it. And what the Lord God has declared is that apart from him, you are spiritually dead. But praise God, the gospel does not end there. There is some good news. So first, Paul describes who we were, and now what Paul is going to do is talk about God. This is what he says. But God. Let's stop right there for a second. The reason why I want to stop right there is because the word but— is indicating that something is going to change, that this is the direction that you are going in, but something happens and changes that direction. Now, the next word that Paul uses is God. He does not say, but church. He does not say, but the Bible. He does not say, but my marriage but my attitude, but my friends, but the prayers of my grandparents, but the prayers that I prayed, but what Paul says is, but God. And what that means is that someone on the outside had to operate on our behalf in order to turn us around. If you think that you did something to earn and make salvation come to you, that is not the gospel. If you think that you were going in the opposite direction and you woke up one morning and you said, you know what, I want to follow God today, that is the false gospel. But because we were dead, and I don't know if you know about deadness, but dead things cannot bring itself back to life. Something on the outside has to intervene to make it come back to life. And so if in your deadness you think that you woke yourself up and brought yourself back to life, it is not the gospel. But God, and so this is what Paul says about God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So first of all, what does Paul say about God? He, first of all, describes God's character. He says, he is, has great mercy. He is rich in mercy. This intense faithfulness and loyalty, withholding what is deserved, a part of who God is, is he is merciful. He is merciful. You know, there was probably a time where you were told not to watch TV until your homework was done. You, your parents get home The TV is on, and they ask you the question, did you finish your homework? And your answer is no. Some of you experienced great mercy because your TV should have been taken away, but it was not. That is mercy. Some of you were speeding one day, and a cop pulled you over and said, do you know what speed you were going at? And you were clearly going 15 miles over the speed limit but you did not get a ticket, that is an act of mercy. But those are little examples to what God has done. God has demonstrated his great mercy by taking someone that was an enemy, that hated him, and made him a son and daughter. All of that is out of his character. God is merciful. But not only that, he says because of the great love with, with which he loved us. God has great love within him It's a part of his character. And it's not like, oh, I love you. Let me give you a big hug. But this love, he demonstrates through sacrifice and compassion, and even mercy is connected to love. That is who God is. Now, the reason why we're taking time to understand this is because when we talk about what God did, he did not do anything because we were trying. God did not say, oh man, they're trying so hard. Oh, let me help them out. Oh, man, you almost got it. Let me, let me help you get over this lot. No, 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 no. It's all because of God's character as being rich in mercy and having great love. Out of who he is, he did something. This is what he did. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. God, out of his rich mercy and his great love, what God did was he changed the trajectory of our lives. He changed our position and our status. No longer are we described as children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but because of God's great love and being rich in mercy, what he does is he makes us alive. That is the work of God. Not dependent upon any merit of our own, but solely being poured out of who he is. This is why in verse 5, Paul reminds us, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead Paul says this to remind us again that we still were helpless there was still nothing else that we could do so why did God bring us back why did he raise us up because of who he is solely because of who he is So as we are being reminded of the gospel, the gospel tells us that we hated God, we were going in the opposite direction of God, we had nothing to do with God, and because of God's love and mercy and his character, God intervened through his Son and changed our status. So no longer are we children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but we are now described as children of God that is what, that is who God is and what God has done. So just take a second, just take a second, and let's just be so grateful to God because of the work that he has done in our lives, if you are a believer today. And this is why, like, when we hear the gospel and we're we are reminded of the gospel, our attitude isn't, oh man, not this again, But it's like, thank you for that reminder because I haven't praised him for that. And the reality is, if the rest of my life was horrible, if I lost everything, if everything fell apart, I will still rejoice and be glad because God has demonstrated his mercy and his love in my salvation. And that's the attitude that all of us should have. All of us should have. No matter what our circumstances in life look like. And we are so grateful because of what God has done. So now, what what is our life? He told us who we were. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. He describes what God has done out of his own character. So it has nothing to do with what we were doing or any merit of our own. But because of who God is, God acted. Now, who are we? First of all, we are united with Christ. We are united with Christ. Let's look again at verse 5 and verse 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are alive with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ. Now, what does all this mean? Well, first of all, it means that our salvation, us being saved, our new status and position was all orchestrated and accomplished through Christ Jesus. So when we say that Jesus is the only way, that's not us being like pretentious or like us thinking that we have the answer and everyone doesn't. Jesus is the only way because he is. Like, it's just a fact. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. What sinners have earned and deserved is death. But what God does himself is he provides eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Jesus is the only way. So what God did to Jesus physically, he did with us spiritually. He brought us back to life. Second, us being united with Christ, it means that all those things that are now his are also ours. That's why Paul uses the phrase co-heirs with Christ. Jesus has received a great inheritance because of his act of obedience, even unto death on a cross, and when we trust in him, we are united with him in such a way that we are in him. The things that he receives, we receive in the end. And bigger than that, it means that our identity is solely in Christ. Observe this. When Paul was describing who we were, it all had to do with the way that we walked in the works of our sinfulness. But now when Paul describes who we are, he cannot describe who we are apart from talking about Jesus Christ because he is our identity. And oftentimes, and it might happen with believers and especially non-believers, our identity might be wrapped up in our past. It might be wrapped up in our jobs. It might be wrapped up in our relationship status. It might be wrapped up in the the career we're pursuing. But as believers, our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Now, there might be times where you do stuff you have no business doing, right? That happens a lot. We say things we have no business saying, we do things we have no business doing, we go places we have no business going, but as a believer, those things do not define who I am. Do you know what defines who I am? Christ Jesus, who died on the cross and was raised by the Father, and now I am in him. Which is why in chapters 1 and in chapters 2, over and over and over again, Paul says, in him and in him, and in Christ Jesus, and with him, and with Christ Jesus, because we are nothing apart from Christ. We are now united with him, we are co-heirs with him, and he defines who I am. This is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, he puts it this way, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He is our identity, and that's great news. And so for those of you who are uh, filled with such guilt because of things in your past, those of you who are overwhelmed with guilt because of things that you might have done even yesterday, allow that guilt to lead to repentance, but let it not define who you are. Your identity is in Christ, and that is why when we don't do right and say right and think right, Father, forgive me for the sins that I have committed. Lord, I confess the wickedness that is still in me and the ways that I act like my old self, but that's not who I am. Will you, by your grace, help me walk in obedience to your commands? That is what the life of a believer looks like every single day. And our status and position has changed because of that. You know, Paul uses uh, in the English Bible, it's the past tense, he says, and raised us up and seated us with him. It's the best way to articulate this reality. What, Christ, what God has done through Christ is sealed forevermore. Am I worried about losing salvation? No, not at all. Am I worried about my future destination? No, not at all. Am I concerned that I'm going to sin so bad that God rejects me? No, not at all. Because what God has done through Christ has been done forevermore. It's this whole idea of now and not yet. I mean, we have been raised. We have been seated. And though the reality, the true reality of that will come at glorification. When we when we rise up and we are with him forever. But that's a reality that has been sealed because sometimes we like to think that, man, if I keep doing this thing over and over again, God is going to reject me. By no means, he will not. Or we think that, man, if I keep going in this direction, God is going to hate me. I'm not really a believer. But understand what God has done through Christ in you is signed, sealed, and delivered forevermore forevermore now side note does that mean that i'm going to go out there and sin like crazy paul has this rhetorical question in romans chapter 6 verse 1 he says well do we continue to sin that grace may abound by no means so the reality is we rejoice in god's grace but we don't take advantage of god's grace And so, I am praying every single day when I wake up, Lord, will you help me to walk in obedience to your commands? And when we do sin, our immediate reaction should be repentance. Not because we're afraid that God will uh, push us away or kick us out of the kingdom, but because we're truly broken over the sin that still resides in us. So, uh, what does this mean for the life of a believer? This reality that we are now united with Christ, what does this mean for the life of a believer? I think the best way to put it is uh, this catechism question. What is our only hope in life and death? What does this reality of being united with Christ mean for the life of a believer? It begs this question, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is simply this, that we are not our own. But belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So for us as believers, because of what God has done through Christ Jesus, my hope, no matter what happens in this life, is found in God and my Savior Jesus Christ. And that makes us bold like crazy. That just vanquishes all fear. Man, why can I go to my neighbor and talk to him about Jesus? I'm not afraid. I mean, what are they gonna do? Like kill me? All right. But my hope is found in Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus alone, and because I have already been raised and I'm already seated, I'm just passing through this world. And as I pass through this world, man, I want to make him known as much as I can. Second, he describes our new identity, who we are now, that we are a testimony. He says this in verses 7 through 9. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We as believers, a part of our new identity, part of who we are now, we are a testimony. What are we a testimony of? We are a testimony of his grace, Paul describes it as immeasurable riches of his grace. What does that mean? So when we think about riches in this world, we always like to quantify it, right? Like so-and-so is worth this much money, or so-and-so has this much stuff. But there is no accountant that can quantify how much grace God is pouring out. There is no computer that can compute how much grace God is pouring out. And the reason why this is such a big deal for us as believers is because grace is greater than our sin. Grace is greater than our temptation. Grace is greater than our shortcomings. God's grace is immeasurable, and he is constantly pouring it out on us. And the reason why this is also important is because we can do nothing apart from his grace. The reason why we're here is because of his grace that is poured out on us. The reason why you have the job that you have is because God's grace that was poured out on you. The reason why you have the house, the car, the family, the school, all these things are evidences of God's grace. And it is a reminder that I can do nothing apart from him. Everything that I have is by his grace. I have not done anything. God has done everything, and it humbles us, and it prevents us from being prideful. So, whereas we want to focus on trying and working and striving, really, we should spend more time praying than anything else every single day. God, I cannot walk in obedience to your commands apart from your help. Will you give me grace to walk well? Will you give me grace to parent well? Will you give me grace to love well? Will you give me grace to work well? Father, I need your grace. And it should take a huge weight off of you. And so as we pray and we beseech the Father for more and more grace, as we recognize that all of these things are an act of his grace, do you know who's glorified? God. Not us. It's all about him. And hopefully you see that. That's like, that's the punchline of the gospel. It's all about God. God. Like, God has done it for his glory and for our good, but it's all about God. He's doing all of these things. But not only that, we are a testimony of his gift. He says this, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, have you ever seen someone with something new and you're just like, oh, that's really cool? Uh, I see that often when I see a cool superhero shirt. Uh, This kid at church had a Batman book bag, and I was like, ooh, that is cool. Where'd you get that from? So when we see things that we think is awesome, our question is, where did you get that from? And what Paul is pointing out here. This great grace of salvation that is now on us, the new clothes of a new identity, which is Christ that we're wearing, man, it is like a gift that people are looking at and they're like, where did you get that from? Man, your attitude is awesome. Where did you get that from? Man, your purpose and direction in life is so admirable. Where did you get that from? Man, your love and your compassion, man, is so convicting. Where did you get that from? And our response is, not Walmart or Target, but from the Lord, and that's what we're able to share, and the reason why I'm like this is because there was a time where I hated God, and I was going in the opposite direction, doing whatever I wanted to do, thinking that this world gave me everything that I needed, but God intervened, and he told me about his son, and made me realize my sin, and changed my heart, and so now I'm loving like him, and I'm serving like him, And I'm caring like him. Do you see how the work of God in our life becomes a way to evangelize to other people? Hey, you don't even need to go through evangelism class. All you got to do is recognize what God has done in your life, and he has automatically made you a testimony. And finally, what are we a testimony of? We are a testimony of our helplessness. We are a testimony of our own helplessness. What does he say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As we walk this life, every single day we encounter people. We don't talk and praise ourselves, but we talk about and we praise the Lord because we were in a helpless state. We were dead in the trespasses and sins, and God made us alive. Those are the things that we are a testimony of. His immeasurable richness of of his grace, of the great gift of salvation that he has given us, and of our own helplessness. And finally, and this this is the biggest deal ever, who are we now? Verse 10 tells us that we are his. We are his. And that is something to celebrate, because what did verse 1 through 3 tell us? That we were of his wrath, that we were children of wrath, that we hated him, but now we belong to him. And Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. That begs this idea of a painting, And so God is like, hey, look at this beautiful painting that I painted with the blood of my son. Look at this painting. Or look at this amazing sculpture that I have created in Christ Jesus through the death and resurrection of my son. That is who we are now. We are a new creation, created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is our identity. That is who we are. These things were done in Christ Jesus, and he says, for good works which God prepared beforehand. Now, it would be really easy for you to say, all right, well, what are all these good works? Like, give me the list so I can make sure I'm doing them. Or, man, I'm like so stressed out, like I don't know what all the good works are. Like, am I doing the good works today? What Paul is trying to do, and the reality he's trying to paint, because of who we are now, we are now walking and working like the one who has recreated us. So the focus is not on the good works. We're not trying to focus in on what are the good works that I should do, but what Paul is doing is describing what we look like now and how we live now. He did that in verses 1 through 3. As someone that's dead, our works were of disobedience. But now as someone that is alive, the evidence of our new life in Christ is that we work like God. The things that we do and the things that we say, man, they look of God. Now, there is something that you need to do. You need to read your Bible and read your Bible and read your Bible. Like, you got to read your Bible so that you know, like, who is God? What does he look like? What has he done? What does his son look like? And as we spend time in the word, the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts and conforms us into the image of his son. So read your Bible. And keep doing it, as the Lord does all the work inside of you. And so God has prepared all these things beforehand. This is the way that he wants us to go. And he expects us to not walk after the course of this world, not following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, but we are now walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The essence of who we are is solely tied into who Christ is and what Christ has done. But a part of that is just this evangelistic nature. And sometimes we think that our faith is all about us. It's private. No, this is just between me and God. But it is not. By no means is it that. Because of what Christ has done in us, and we are a bright and shining light in a world of darkness, and as we rejoice and as we remember about what God has done— It compels us to proclaim. The act of remembering is so powerful. May we not neglect remembering the work of God in our lives through his son, Jesus Christ. That while it takes us back in time and leads us to rejoice, it also compels us and reminds us of why we're moving forward. It is for his glory and for his renown among the nations. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for the gift of salvation that we have not earned at all. There's nothing that we could have done to be saved because we were dead in our sins. But you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, has made us alive. Will you help us to rejoice in that truth each and every day? And will you remind us that it's by your grace that we have been saved? And it's by your grace that we are able to walk in obedience to your commands every single day. Thank you so much for the gospel. Will you help us to proclaim it to those that don't know it? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.